Let's turn to First Peter. First Peter chapter three. We're going to finish this chapter today. That's pretty exciting. It's always a good feeling. I mean, it's a great feeling when you finish an entire book. Although usually I find myself a little sad when we finish a book because by the time you've studied in depth a book of the Bible, it becomes like a friend to you. You know what I mean? So, but uh, getting through a chapter is kind of exciting. And, you know, I was thinking this morning, this is a very rich section of Scripture, in my opinion. But, I mean, all of Scripture is rich. But there are certain passages that seem to really jump out at you or impact you, at least for me. And I was thinking about the fact that even though Peter wasn't a really prolific writer, Paul obviously being the most prolific writer in the New Testament, but the richness of Peter's writings, I love his first and second epistle. And uh, there are those who say that the Gospel of Mark is really Peter's gospel. Peter mentored Mark, and um, Peter told Mark the story of his time with Jesus, the three years, three and a half years that they spent together. And so um, there's a lot of Peter's personality that comes through in the Gospel of Mark. So we don't have a lot of New Testament writings from Peter, but the ones we do have, I think, are exceptionally good. So we're going to read verses 18 through 22. And then we will pray. Beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We thank you for the wonderful writings of Peter, uh, one of the men who was the closest to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. And we see the richness of his spiritual experience as a close, personal follower, disciple, and ultimately apostle of Jesus Christ. We ask you to bless this time this morning as we study the words of Peter, which we know are your words. Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Bless this time of study, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I would say that as we begin this section here today, verse 18, it's been said that it is, it is although it's one of the shortest and simplest, and yet it's one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament of the meaning of the cross of Jesus. Peter lays it all out here in this one verse. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Just a wonderful, concise laying out of the gospel, if you will, about the meaning of the cross of Christ. So now when Peter says Christ also suffered, or one translation says died, Christ also died, which he did. He suffered. His suffering ultimately led to his death. 
Peter is speaking here in the light of the previous section. We remember last week we talked about the fact that Peter talked about the fact that we are called to sometimes suffer for righteousness sake. And so the point Peter's making here is having um, exhorted us to that, you know, he's saying Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. So Christ also suffered. Even as Peter says, yes, there's going to be times when you're going to suffer uh, because of Christ. And when you do, it's a blessing. You will be rewarded for it. You will be blessed. You will be highly favored, if you will. Christ also suffered. What did he suffer for? For sins. And in the Greek here, the phrase for sins is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, very highly regarded translation, the Septuagint. This same phrase is used in the Septuagint in regard to the sin offering for atonement in the Old Testament. Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary defines atonement as this, satisfaction or reparation. That's a term we've heard recently, reparations. And some have talked about the fact that perhaps we need to pay pay out reparations for the descendants of those that were uh, victims of slavery prior to the Civil War. But reparation, it's a repayment. And so satisfaction or reparation made by giving an equivalent for an injury. The injury is our sin against God. And so Christ, in atoning for our sins, He satisfied or made reparation by giving an equivalent for an injury. In other words, the perfect man, the perfect Son of God, dying in place of those who deserve to die. Or by doing or suffering that which is received in satisfaction for an offense or injury. So satisfaction. Because of God's perfection. He is perfect in all of His ways. He is holy, righteous, just, and on and on it goes. The many aspects of God's nature. But ultimately God is perfect. And therefore, anything short of perfection requires satisfaction. Jesus satisfied that requirement by sacrificing Himself on the cross of Calvary. Christ also suffered for sins, not His sins. The Bible tells us He who knew no sin became sin for us. Now, having said that, Christ also suffered for sins. He made atonement. And again, in the Old Testament, there's a clear contrast here because the next phrase in this first verse, 18, once... He suffered once for sins. Uh, or as uh, one translation says, once for all. And so there's a clear contrast here with the Old Testament yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And this declares the complete sufficiency of Christ's death. The sin issue has been dealt with once and for all. You see, under the Old Testament law, the Day of Atonement, the annual day, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of the people. It was only a temporary remedy. It had to be repeated every year, year after year. So the term atonement in the Old Testament implies a temporary covering over of sin, where in the New Testament, the atonement that Christ has made 
not only implies it, but emphatically states that it is a once-for-all permanent removal of our sins when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and receive the atoning sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, the sin issues dealt with once and for all. Now, sometimes there are other forces at work. Sometimes other people will remind you of your sins. The devil loves to throw your sins in your face. And so we need to understand this. I think far too often believers are uh, blindsided or caught off guard by these thoughts and these feelings of guilt and shame and so forth. Romans 8 says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anytime you're feeling condemned, you can be sure it's not the Holy Spirit. He will convict you of your sin, not past sins. Those have already been dealt with. He will convict you of your present sinful state if you are in a sinful state if you are involved in some type of sin the holy spirit will lovingly convict you he will never condemn you the bible tells us that god casts our sins as far as the east is from the west he remembers them no more and by the way that's a that's something that only god can do now when you give those sins to christ when you confess them when you repent when you're born again by the Spirit of God, the sting is removed because you know you've been forgiven. But you'll never really totally forget, right? And the devil is committed to making sure you don't forget. But what we have to remember is that God says he does forget them. Part of what makes him God is he has the capacity to do something you and I cannot. He can literally choose to forget about your sins. And so every time the enemy comes, maybe it's your own emotions, your own feelings, who knows, but it's not God. When these voices begin to come to you and remind you of how horrible you are, how sinful you are, how could you ever possibly believe that God really loves you? Any ever heard any of those voices before? It's not God. It's not the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you that. And it's contrary to the truth of God's word. So please keep that in mind. God says he will cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. He will remember them no more. The sin issue has been dealt with once and for all on the cross of Calvary. And it's interesting. In Hebrews 6.4, this is a very difficult passage, a very controversial passage. I'm almost reluctant to bring it up, but I, I'm going to because I want to point out something here. Hebrews 6.4-6. through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Very difficult passage. I'm not, I don't even think there's any consensus on exactly what Paul is saying here. There are different ideas. The Arminianists, those who teach that you can lose your salvation, the Arminianists would teach you that these are true believers who have now lost their salvation and it cannot be retrieved. There's another group that will tell you, well, these people aren't, weren't really believers. They weren't genuinely born again. They were just what you would call nominal Christians, Christians in name only, what have you. And there are others that say, well, Paul 
was merely presenting a hypothetical here, which actually could never really happen. But he's trying to make a point of how important it is that once you've made that commitment to Christ, that you don't turn back. It's just like the old song that we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. But the point here, the reason I bring this up in the context of this teaching today, is because Paul talks about the idea of crucifying again for themselves the Son of God flies in the face of the point that Peter is making here in 1 Peter 3. It was a one-time deal. And sadly, I, I've witnessed this in my many years as a believer and a pastor, uh, is that there are some, and I grew up in an Arminianist church. So that impression was given quite often that if you had sinned it all this week, you need to get saved all over again. Anybody ever, anybody else experienced that? I grew up in a church like that where people were constantly going up and getting re-saved because you were you led to believe or taught to believe that if you sinned, you'd lost your salvation. Man, nobody could stay saved for five minutes if that were the case. And it led to a lot of guilt. It led to a lot of people falling away because it sets a standard that no one can meet. If you were taught in the church and led to believe that every time you blow it, you've lost it and you've got to go back and get saved all over again, that can become extremely discouraging, frustrating, and eventually many people just give up. What sustains us is the grace of God. The knowledge that no matter how many times we blow it, He's always ready, willing, and able to forgive us and restore us unto Himself. And it's not even a matter of, oh no, I think I lost my salvation today. It's, oh man, I let something get between me and God. We're not as close as we were yesterday. I need to get this right. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation because even as sin was dealt with once and for all, the final complete atonement made by Christ, salvation's a once and for all deal too. You can only get saved once. And so it's sad when I see people through the years who have felt like they needed to get saved over and over again. You can only get saved once. If you're saved, you're saved. Get it? From then on, and you've heard me talk about this more than once, from then on, it's a matter of maintaining your salvation. I've used the analogy of getting a wonderful, the gift of a wonderful brand new car. You know, it could be anything from a, you know, a Kia to a Cadillac. That's not the point. If you're gifted with a brand new vehicle, if you really appreciate it, and you want it to last you a long time, then you maintain it, right? You change the oil, you check the tires, you know, uh, change the spark plugs, all the things that President Obama said we should do to, to lower the, the gas, gas consumption in America. <laughs> Keep your tires inflated, change your spark plugs. But with salvation, when we talk about lasting a long time, we're talking about eternity. The gift of salvation is given freely to all who believe. Once you've received it, you have a responsibility. And that's kind of part of what that Hebrews passage was talking about. We have a responsibility to maintain it. There's an old expression. You'll see it sometimes on wall plaques and so forth. Or even bumper stickers. If God seems far away, guess who moved? 
He promised to never leave us or forsake us, right? And yet sometimes people will get in this place in their lives where maybe they're not maintaining, maintaining their salvation the way they ought to be. And the, how do we do that? Well, we talked about oil changes and inflating your tires and changing your spark plugs. It's prayer, it's worship, it's Bible study, it's fellowship. All these things are part of maintaining your salvation. And if somebody is a believer, but they choose not to participate in those things, they don't go to church hardly ever. And again, it's not about being religious. It's about being relational with God and with other believers. And it's about submitting yourself to the teaching of the Word of God by individuals who have been called and gifted to do that. It doesn't make those people any better or more important, but God, you look, go through the Scriptures, you find that God, Ephesians chapter 4, He's given some apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists for the equipping of the saints. So you go to a garage to get your car maintenance, right? This is your spiritual garage. You get your oil changed, your spark plugs, so forth. Fellowship, prayer, worship, Bible study, if you want to maintain your salvation. And then people say, well, I don't need church to do that. All I need is God. Well, all you need is God to get saved. But guess who started the church in the first place? Jesus said upon this rock, speaking of himself, he said, I will build my church. How do you find his church? In fact, my buddy, John Higgins, Calvary Chapel, Tri-City, in Tempe, Arizona, he added a subtitle onto his church. It's now called Calvary Chapel, His Church. I like that. But how do you find His church? You look for churches where the Word of God's being taught. Not willy-nilly nitpick here and there. Just the verses that you know are going to make people feel good. I was just talking to my wife about that this morning. I'm not even going to go into it. I've turned over a new leaf. You find a church where the Word of God is being taught consistently, where they're not teaching out of psychology books and self-help books. You see? Okay, there's this inner struggle going on right now. You find a church where people are worshiping in spirit and in truth like Jesus told the woman at the well, where there's heartfelt, sincere, spirit-filled worship, where you find people who genuinely love one another. That's his church. Get it? We were talking about salvation as a one-time deal, but then there's maintenance involved. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, writes Paul the Apostle, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. And that's a good sign. Paul says, you guys weren't just behaving properly when I was around, but even when I wasn't around. How would Paul know that? Because he received reports from elders, leaders in the church, various people, uh, others that would go and visit these churches. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Boy, that's a really good sign. He's challenging them. He's exhorting them. And he's saying, as you have always obeyed. So he's not saying you guys are blowing it. You're not doing what you should be doing. He's encouraging them to keep on keeping on. 
And that's important. We can't rest on our laurels. We can't partake of yesterday's manna. How many of you know about that story? The children of Israel in the wilderness, God was sending them manna from heaven. It's the funny thing is the word manna means what is it? <laughs> they didn't know what it is, but they knew it tasted really good and it was very nourishing. And it was some kind of a wafer-like substance that tasted like honey and it provided them with all their nutritional needs. But the thing is they couldn't store it up. If they tried to store it up, put it in some kind of a, a satchel or pouch or something and save it for tomorrow, when they would open it the next day, it would be full of maggots. What was God teaching them? To rely upon Him day by day, every single day. What did Jesus teach the disciples in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. And that didn't just mean food, by the way. In fact, I think that's the least of what it meant when Jesus taught them to pray that prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. He was talking about relying upon God each day for all that we need, emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. Relying upon Him for everything. So Paul says, in light of this, he says, now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. I can't work out yours. You can't work out mine. We can encourage one another and support one another as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But the bottom line is, each individual man and woman is personally responsible for their own maintenance, maintenance of their own salvation, which is given by God as a free gift. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That means with a sense of awe and respect for God, an understanding of how important it is, how significant it is that God has made Himself known to you. He's revealed Himself to you. He's given you the precious gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The fear and trembling also, again, I think God has given us scriptures. Again, the reason we have an Arminianist camp that says, well, yeah, you you can get saved, but you can also lose it. And then we have a um, Calvinist camp that says, no, once saved, always saved. Once you've been saved, no way, you can't lose it. And where did they get those theological viewpoints from? Because there are scriptures that seem to support both beliefs. Now, why would God do that? On the one hand, Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we could have an assurance of salvation. It was never God's intention, never his plan or purpose that his kids would go around worried every day about whether or not they were saved and whether or not they were going to get to go to heaven. And that's another sad thing that I've observed in many quarters of the church. Believers who don't seem to have an assurance of salvation, a security. This is particularly true. I hate to say this. I'm not trying to slam anybody. But for the most part, my experience was related to people in the Catholic Church. Rarely, if ever, do they have an absolute certainty of salvation. They believe it depends upon the Eucharist, confessing to the priests, so on and so forth. Uh, one of the dominant feelings or impressions that I get from many, many people in the Catholic Church is they don't really know if they're going to heaven or not. Jesus didn't die for that. And they're not the only ones. There are other denominations, other cult groups. In fact, all cult groups are fueled 
empowered by this idea that they inculcate into their constituents that you can never really know for sure. So you better keep working, buddy. You talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, it goes on and on. Virtually every cult group is characterized by the fact that their people are scared to death that they may not get there. You believe Jesus went through all that he went through so that you could live life like that? You were already living life like that, weren't you? Without Jesus. That's how most of the world lives. They have no idea where they're going, if they're going. A lot of people try to deceive themselves. They say, well, I don't really believe in God, but if there really is a God, I'm sure I'll get to go to heaven because I'm a pretty good person. No, that's not how it works. God does not grade on a curve. With God, pass or fail. If Jesus Christ is living inside of you, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, if you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you pass. If you've rejected Him, you fail. Get it? It's just that God likes to keep things simple because He knows who He's dealing with. He made us. And He also knows we're in an extremely fallen state. So He likes to keep it simple. No one can add to what Jesus has accomplished. Oh, to finish my other point, the Scriptures that, again, God's Word never contradicts itself. If there is a, if there's an understanding problem or an error, it's with us, not Him. But I believe He has structured the Scriptures in such a way to keep us on our toes, if you will. Because if there was a Bible verse that said, walking a fine line here, not the first time. (laughs) If there was a scripture that said, my dearly beloved, once you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do whatever you want. You can go out and sin. You can party. You can have a good time. Your salvation will never be taken away from you. What would people do? They would go out and sin and party and have a good time. They wouldn't maintain their salvation, would they? Not by any means. So there are no scriptures like that. There are many scriptures that give us comfort, that give us assurance, like the ones we're reading today. Sin has been dealt with once and for all. Once and for all, Christ died, as we'll see in a moment, the just for the unjust. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have the promise. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. However, then you have other scriptures, like the one we just read in Hebrews, and that could cause you to perhaps break out in a sweat. And you go, wait a minute. I thought I was secure in Christ, and now the writer of Hebrews, which we believe is the Apostle Paul, never been able to be purely, totally confirmed, the writer of Hebrews said, if you've tasted of the goodness of God, if you've, you know, experienced the Holy Spirit and so forth, and then you fall away, it's impossible for you to be restored because you're crucifying Christ all over again, at least in your own heart and mind. I believe God's, Pastor Chuck Smith put it best. You really can't say it any better than he did. And I will quote him again here today. 
I know some don't like to quote him anymore because he's with the Lord now, but we still quote other church fathers from the past. And I consider Pastor Chuck to be a church father. When he was asked about this issue of eternal security, Calvinism versus Arminianism and so forth, Pastor Chuck's response was this. We are eternally secure in Christ. In Christ. As long as you follow Jesus, you got nothing to worry about. And if you're not following Him, you should be worried. Get it? Okay. We'll move on. No one can add to what Jesus has accomplished. It's simply a matter of each individual's willingness to accept what He has already done. There are no new messiahs. There are people with messiah complexes that think they are the Savior. I've witnessed that over the years. doesn't usually turn out too well when people rise up in a church like that that have a very powerful need to be needed and to draw people to themselves rather than to Christ. No new messiahs, no incarnation of the Christ consciousness, as they say in the New Age movement. Buddha's not a messiah, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, and some people even elevate to the Pope to almost a Messiah-like or God-like status. There's only one man, God-man in the entire universe that can save your soul, and his name is Jesus Christ. So we go on. Peter says, the just for the unjust, or one translation says the righteous for the unrighteous. So Peter previously had talked to us about this, having discussed the privilege that we have of suffering for doing good in the previous verses that we studied last week. Peter reminds us of the example of Jesus, the righteous one, the good one, dying for the unrighteous, the bad or sinful one, us. And so the next time that we're inclined to not be gracious or kind or understanding to those who misuse us and abuse us, those who revile us and so forth, persecute us, we need to remind ourselves that prior to conversion, we were no different. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's what being a believer is all about. It's not hard, and Peter makes this case elsewhere, it's not hard to be nice to those that are nice to you, right? It's a lot easier to love those who love you. It's called a mutual admirational society. What sets believers apart as we walk with Christ and we exemplify Him to the world, this is a big difference. Anybody can be nice to those who are nice to them, but it takes something special. It takes the Spirit of God. It takes the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life to be nice to those who are not nice to you. And I'm getting convicted even as I speak because there are times when we all fall short in this area. Jesus, of course, we know this, was unjustly accused of being evil, blaspheming, trying to take over the kingdom. Remember? They tried to portray Jesus as a usurper of the power of Caesar. And so when they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, they said, we have no king but Caesar. 
Wow, did they blow it. Because Jesus is the King of Kings. We know He was unjustly accused, abused. When all He did was come into this world, love and help people, healing them, delivering them from demonic possession, saving their souls. So the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why did He go through all that? Why would the perfect sinless Son of God submit Himself to all that abuse? Peter says to bring us to God. Jesus' purpose in all this was to restore our relationship with our Heavenly Father, which was broken all the way back in the Garden of Eden when man disobeyed God and fell, cast out of the garden, brought the entire human race and all of creation under the curse. Jesus did all this, went through all this to bring us to God. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So reconciliation and salvation go hand in hand. Unless we are reconciled to God, we cannot be saved. Jesus came to bring us to God, to reconcile us. And that means restoration of relationship. In this case, with God. And it says, He was put to death in the flesh. Another important point that Peter makes here. God in the flesh. One of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, remember? It means God with us in the Hebrew. Emmanuel, God with us. He shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. God in the flesh died for us in the flesh. The heresy of Gnosticism taught that Jesus was really just a ghost, a phantom, a spirit with no tangible physical body. That would not have worked. The Bible clearly teaches Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In the Old Testament, we have the blood sacrifices. The Old Testament tells us the life is in the blood. God created us in His image, but He gave us bodies of flesh and blood. That's why God came down at this time of year, the nativity, the birth of Christ. God became flesh, John chapter 1, and dwelt among us. So the sacrifice had to be completely, absolutely in proportion to the one being sacrificed for. We covered that earlier. God in the flesh. Jesus' sacrifice was an actual, literal flesh sacrifice. And if He didn't have a body, He couldn't have done that. And again, there are even groups today who are still really in line with this Gnostic belief system that deny the physicality of Christ and the, that He will return literally in a physical body. He appeared before the disciples. They touched His body. He ate fish with them. But He referred to His body a little bit differently. He didn't say, I am flesh and blood. He said, I am flesh and bone. Blood, The life is in the blood, but in the fallen state of man, the blood also carries a lot of the diseases and sickness. So apparently our new eternal bodies will have a different substance. They'll be flesh and bone 
and the life-sustaining force will be God himself. How cool is that? Put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit. The Bible speaks of the Spirit raising Jesus from the dead in Romans 2, 1 through 4, Romans 8, 11, 1 Timothy 3, 16. And then in Acts 2, 24, it says God raised Jesus. And then in Mark 8, 31, it says Jesus raised Jesus. Now, don't be perplexed. The meaning is the same in each case. Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we call it the Trinity, the triune God. The resurrection of Jesus is a work of the triune God. The Father raised Him, the Spirit raised Him, and He raised Himself. To bring people to God, as we saw here, why did He go through all this? To bring us to God. God... Jesus died and the Spirit raised him to life. Now we get into a really interesting section that is really challenging. So hold on to your yarmulkes. Verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. A better translation than preached would be he announced or heralded. This passage is one of the most difficult to interpret in the, throughout in the entire Bible. There have been more than 90 variations of interpretation attempted by Christian scholars. But of course, I'll be able to totally settle it right here today. <laughs> Since the second century, more than 90 variations. Generally, however, these have been reduced to four plausible understandings. One... Here's the first one. Jesus descended into Hades, the realm of the dead, between his crucifixion and resurrection, so that would have been the Spirit Jesus, to proclaim judgment upon those condemned in the Old Testament period. I'm not really down with that one, but that's one of them. Two, it's possible, however, that's why we put it out there, Jesus descended into Tartarus, which is the place of confinement for fallen angels, to proclaim judgment to the fallen angels. Now, in light of verse 20, I think this does carry some weight. We'll talk about it more in a moment. Thirdly, Jesus descended into a realm of Hades known as paradise. So we know it was divided into two sections. Remember the parable Jesus taught about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was the poor guy that laid outside the gate of this rich man's house, begging, had sores all over him. The dogs would come up and lick him. That's where they got the term dog lick, I guess. Isn't there a, a town in Arkansas called dog lick? I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> Lazarus dies and he goes to paradise. He's there with Father Abraham. A rich man dies, he goes to the other side. The Bible tells us there was a great chasm between the two and also a tremendous difference in temperature. Lazarus is doing great in paradise. Over here we got the rich man and he's hot. And I don't mean good looking. And he's asking Father Abraham if he can send Lazarus over to give him a drink of water, remember? And he says, sorry, we can't do that. 
And then the guy says, well, at least send him back so that he can preach to my brothers and they don't wind up in the same place that I'm in. But that third one, Jesus descended into a realm of Hades known as paradise, the good side, in which Old Testament saints were held until the atonement could be actually historically accomplished. In other words, in the Old Testament, again, atonement was temporary. It was a it was a mirror image, a picture of things to come in Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that all the Old Testament practices, the sacrifices and everything to do with the temple were all just images of what would be fulfilled in Christ. So these Old Testament saints were there in paradise, which isn't a bad place, but it's not the ultimate destination. Heaven, where God is, would be the ultimate destination. And then finally, here during the millennium on the earth and throughout eternity in the new Jerusalem. So the preaching would be the message of the finished atonement at Golgotha. I like this one a lot. I think it's possible that more than one of these could be included in what Jesus accomplished during those three days between his death and resurrection. One thing we can know for sure, Peter tells us, that he did, uh, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Ephesians 4, 8, and this is quoting, this is Paul quoting from Psalm 68, 18. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. That's talking about his ascension on the Mount of Olives 40 days after the resurrection. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Ephesians 4 says those gifts are the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. A gift to the church for the equipping of the saints. He led captivity captive. And so there's an implication there that these Old Testament saints were brought out of Hades, the good side, and brought into heaven. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And there's some guys out there with some really weird twists on this, and I won't even go into that, but they, for the most part, happen to be within the what we call the faith movement, that Jesus actually suffered down there and was tormented by devils and so forth. Ridiculous. No way, Jose. But this passage in Ephesians is thought to reflect the ministry of Jesus immediately following his death, but prior to his resurrection, in which he descended into Sheol or Hades to announce the accomplishment of atonement to the lost, as well as to the dead saints of the Old Testament. He then led captivity captive. He led these Old Testament saints into heaven's rest. So there seems to be quite a bit of agreement on this aspect of what this passage is all about. Now again, another take on this that I'm not in agreement with. Some understand this to mean that Christ, between his death and resurrection, descended into Hades and offered to those who lived before Noah a second chance for salvation. But there's really no biblical support for that. It's just one of those other theories floating around out there. There's not even one hint here of anybody having a second chance to be saved after death. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Jesus died once. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. One final atoning sacrifice. 
one opportunity to be saved, and that's while you're still on this earth and you're still alive and kicking. The op- and since none of us ever know when our time on earth here will be done, again, the younger you are, the more you think you're immortal and you're going to live forever. The older you get, the more you realize that's not the case. And that was one of my prayers with regards to the departure of our beloved brother Dick. Again, we rejoice today because we know he's with God. You can't always say that with everyone that dies, can you? Sadly, many times you don't know for sure or you do know for sure. Again, ultimately only God knows for sure. But in many cases, there are some strong indicators that person probably didn't go to be with God. That's why, even though you might say on the one hand, well, I've got a whole lifetime ahead of me to get saved. I'm going to go out and have some fun first. There are people who do that. But what if you get run over by a car? You know, anything could happen. We don't know. Only God knows. And you hear of people, young people having heart attacks and all kinds. You just don't know. That's why the Bible says, how many of you believe the Bible? (laughs) absolutely 100% the Bible says today is the day of salvation anyone listening to this message whether you're here in this room watching on the internet whatever later on maybe on the TV program today is always the day of salvation because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow Just as man is destined to die once. Jesus died once for the sins of all, the just for the unjust. There is only one salvation. Once you're saved, you're saved. You do have a responsibility to maintain that gift of salvation. But you're saved by grace through faith. And to what degree someone can jeopardize that salvation by not maintaining it, is open to debate. I don't think that's a debate we want to have, do you? A lot of people do live their lives that way. How far can I go and still go to heaven? That's no way to live. Our concern should be, what must I do to please God and show Him I love Him I can never repay him for the precious gift that he's given me. But that shouldn't stop me from trying. Not because I'm trying to earn my salvation, but because I appreciate it that much. My point being this, there is no reincarnation, okay? One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And here's the fourth one, my opinion, the most unlikely. The Spirit of Christ preached through Noah concerning impending judgment to the disobedient spirits of men in the pre-flood civilization. I don't buy into that one at all. But those are the four major. And except for the last one, I can see the possibility that it could be any or all of the above. But I could, Because, again, as we get to the next section which I think we will hold off until next week. But the next section gives us a strong indication that these spirits 
were the angels that disobeyed, the fallen angels that disobeyed God in history past during the time of Noah. But then again, we have captivity being led captive. So it's quite possible. I mean, God is a very efficient God. You know, he gets things done. So it's quite possible that when Jesus went down there, he took care of business on both sides. Get it? Well, we'll have to wait for that till next week. Let's stand. Father, first and foremost, above all this morning, we want to thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, the one and only son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, and we're getting ready to celebrate that, although we do celebrate it every day. We have the special time of year coming upon us where we celebrate the birth of Christ. May it be a very rich, wonderful, special time for each one of us and for those near and dear to us. But we thank you so much that Jesus came and he died for sins once for all. He took care of business. He got it done. The sin issue was settled once and for all, but now it's up to each one of us individually to make our own choice. Will we receive the precious gift of salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life through Jesus Christ, or will we try to go it on our own, which is a fatal mistake? The just for the unjust, Lord. And not only is there great significance in the fact that he did that for us, we were unjust, we were unrighteous, we are sinners, and he was and is perfect in all of his ways. And yet he laid down his life for us. He's also setting the example for us that we would behave that way towards others because that's how they're going to see the reality of your love. Lord, help us, please, Father, to do a better job of reflecting your love to those around us, of being more understanding, more forgiving, more compassionate, and much less likely to retaliate. Lord, your word said, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's your place to exact vengeance. It's our place to model forgiveness. We ask for your help. And Lord, we thank you for your word, which is so precious to us and feeds our spirits, Lord, and strengthens us that we can maintain that salvation. We can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Thank you for this time together today, Father. We pray that those who would be coming up for prayer in just a moment, you'd be preparing their hearts to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, whatever it might be, if they need salvation, if they need healing, forgiveness in some capacity, provision, encouragement. Lord, just pour out your Holy Spirit, we pray, and anoint those who will be praying for them, that they would have the wisdom and insight of the Holy Spirit to pray effectively, Lord, for those who come today. And for all of us, we pray for your safety, your hand of protection upon us as we travel out to eat or home or wherever we may be going. And we ask you to bless our fellowship. We pray that you'd help us to uh, get better at, and better at practicing fellowship, hospitality towards one another, loving one another. That is part of maintaining our salvation, the fellowship of the brethren. So for those who choose to stick around and fellowship and maybe have some coffee or something else, bless that fellowship as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.